Well, a few weeks ago, I, f- I experienced physical exhaustion on a whole new level. Uh, for several months, I'd been training uh, to hike the John Muir Trail, which is from Mount Whitney in Central California in the Sierra. And, uh, and I, was, I was going north from Mount Whitney to, and it finishes in Yosemite Valley. And since Chances are you know about Mount Whitney being the highest point in the contiguous United States at, as you can see the sign there, 14,500 feet. Um, since it starts, that's the starting point, you know, John Muir was gnarly, right? I mean, the starting point of this trail. Um, anyway, so the starting point was the highest peak, and then it continued over 200 miles of some of the, some of the steepest mountain passes and rugged terrain in North America. And so... I knew that I would need to be in the best physical condition possible if I was going to enjoy uh, this trip. Um, But despite all the training that I did, by the time I got to the summit of Mount Whitney to officially begin my journey, let's just say I was feeling my mortality. Um, (laughs) Okay, so so to summit Mount Whitney at sunrise, that's that's when this picture was taken, I, and, and, it, and it's an important thing to, to summit early on because there's thunderstorms in the afternoon and stuff. So, so that was the goal, to summit at sunrise. In order to do that, I had to get up at 2 in the morning. And so I started hiking at the, in, in, dark, in the dark. And by 6.30, I was able to get to the top and see the sun coming up. And it was really an amazing experience. I mean, there were incredible views of like looking down at really tall mountains <laughs> and uh, lakes down there, crystal clear lakes and the valleys. It was amazing. But I was really tired. I've got a smile kind of pasted on there, but I was really tired. Um, and this was just the beginning. I was just starting the trip. After a few hours of hiking, after summiting, hiking, I descended down to um, a campsite, my campsite by a lake, where I had planned to get some rest. And even though my accommodations were a constricted sleeping bag, a minimal pad between my body and the hard ground, um, I was so tired that my accommodations felt like a five-star hotel. It was just so wonderful to lay my tired body down on this mat and get inside this sleeping bag. And I expected that I would sleep for maybe an hour or so, but when I returned to consciousness, um, about six hours later, <laughs> uh, something miraculous had taken place during that time. When I laid down to rest, I was pretty concerned because I felt wrecked. I mean, my body hurt, my, my feet hurt. I was really tired. And, you know, I was just starting the trip. How in the world am I going to finish the rest of this trip, over 200 miles, if I'm feeling this wrecked at the very beginning. But after six hours of profound rest, I felt completely different. Not only did I experience relief from the discomfort of joint and muscle pain, but I experienced restoration. Restoration, it was like a miraculous thing. I felt completely different. In fact, I I felt so good that I actually packed up after this long six-hour nap and hiked several more hours that day. Because I rested, I experienced restoration. Those, Those two go together. 
And just as physical restoration comes from laying down, stopping work, and resting, in the same way, spiritual restoration can only happen when we stop working. We stop trying to fix the problems that are wrong with us or other people or the world, and we rest. This is where we experience renewed peace. Spiritual restoration is what we need. We need renewed peace. We need renewed power to love others. And this comes through the Sabbath rest. This is why the Sabbath matters. So, and, and this is also why we're going to be spending today and the next six weeks talking about the Sabbath. We're doing a sermon series, and we're calling it The Rest We Need. God gets it. He knows we need rest. And so we're going to be focusing on that. Actually, the Bible says a lot about the Sabbath. If you read the Bible from cover to cover, you're going to see a lot of talk about the Sabbath. It matters to God. This is an important topic. And I would argue that one of the key reasons that this topic matters to God, there are several, but one of them is that it matters to him because our well-being matters to him. And he knows that our well-being is dependent physically and spiritually is dependent upon rest. So he talks about the Sabbath. He wants us to be restored. He wants us to be whole. So to get started this morning, I'd like to take a look at a teaching from the New Testament, teaching from from Jesus's ministry that shows us how to keep from missing out. You know, we're so prone to doing stuff that exhausts ourselves. Perhaps you're pretty tired right now, and if you're comfortable enough and need to take a nap, go for it. You can go back and listen to it online, but but the deal is, is that we are all prone to getting exhausted. We do stuff that wears ourselves out, and so Jesus' teaching helps us It shows us how to keep from missing out. Jesus provides a way for us to experience the restoration that we desperately need and the restoration that we are not capable of providing for ourselves. The way we experience this is through the Sabbath. All right, so the title of the message this morning, if you haven't caught it already, is Restoration. And before we get into the biblical text, I'd like to just pause for prayer and ask God to guide us in this time. Heavenly Father, thank you for knowing our needs. Thank you for anticipating them and for already having your way provided to bring us restoration and relief. Lord, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear you. You know how prone we are to get distracted. You know how stubborn we are to not want to listen to what you have to say. And so I pray that you'd soften our hearts, that we'd allow your spirit to speak what we need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn with me to the book of Mark. Um, second book in the New Testament, and if you are using the Pew Bible, it's page 1003. We're going to be picking it up at uh, verse 23 of Mark chapter 2. So in Mark chapter 2, Jesus is talking to a people, a group of people, who are completely missing the Sabbath rest. This group of people the Bible calls Pharisees, and Chances are you may know, because there's quite a bit said about the Pharisees in the Bible, but the irony of this is that Pharisees were famous for being meticulous Sabbath keepers. Like, this is one of the things that people knew them for. Like, oh, if anyone keeps the Sabbath, it's the Pharisees. In fact, these people, these men were so concerned, they're a group of men, religious leaders, they were so concerned about how to properly keep the Sabbath and to ensure that everyone properly kept the Sabbath that they came up with a list of almost 40 different rules, their rules, 
forbidding different activities that might violate Sabbath keeping. And if someone did not follow their rules, they were careful to let them know about it. One example of this is in Mark chapter 2, verse 23. The Bible tells us that this particular story took place on the Sabbath. Jesus and his disciples were traveling, and they were passing through a field of ripe grain, just about ready to get harvested. The grain was ripe. And as they walked along, the disciples were taking the, the tops of the grain and, and they were taking it in their hands, and they were rubbing it together, blowing away the chaff, and just leaving the kernels of grain, and they were eating it. Apparently, it was, it was tasty. Well, I don't know if it was tasty or not, but, but they were hungry, and they were eating it. When the Pharisees saw this, verse 24 of, John, of Mark chapter 2 tells us that they said to Jesus, why are you allowing your disciples to do what is unlawful to do on the Sabbath? pretty interesting that they saw themselves as a higher authority than Jesus. But they asked this question, why is it, teacher? This is negligence on your part. Clearly, these men are doing something unlawful. That was the accusation. Well, let's just pause for a moment, and rather than accepting that accusation, let's just think about it for a second. According to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, Travelers were permitted. So the Old Testament law, which the Pharisees were experts in, travelers were permitted to walk through a grain field. And they could not use a sickle, but they could use their hands, and they could take the grain, rub it in their hands, and eat it. And there was no violation there. That was not looked upon as stealing someone else's property. It was permitted for travelers to do this, to satisfy their hunger. This is the mercy of God here. Yeah, let them do that. No problem at all. They're hungry. I care about that. So biblically speaking, the disciples were innocent. But according to the laws that these religious leaders had made up, they came up with these things, They saw the disciples as guilty of breaking the Sabbath. Now, what's crazy about this is that the work of the Pharisees in attempting to protect the Sabbath rest actually turned it into an exhausting burden. And before we get too quick to point our fingers at them, let me just observe that this is kind of a problem in humanity, that we take the gifts of God, and if we hold on to them, if we possess them, if we try to use them for our ends, if we try to, try to make them what we think we sh- we, that they should be, we end up messing things up. And that's what the Pharisees did with the Sabbath. Their attempts to protect the Sabbath rest turned it into a tiring experience, and it robbed them as well. It's not like they, they got off with, without being affected by this, they also were not experiencing the blessing of rest. I mean, just consider for a moment in this story, why were these Pharisees in the grain field? What were these guys doing there? They knew that they weren't supposed to be cultivating the grain field. They weren't cultivating it. They obviously were not also, I don't maybe they were that hypocritical that they were like harvesting a little bit of the grain too. It'd be like, "Mm, you guys are guilty. Probably not though. They're probably not in the grain field for any other reason except to make an accusation. That's why they're there. So they, were, they weren't there to keep the Sabbath either. They're there to make accusations. So to turn these religious leaders, 
these hardworking, exhausted religious leaders, to turn them from the insanity of their man-made religion, Jesus appeals to biblical precedent. In verse 25 of Mark chapter 2, Jesus calls their attention to a familiar story to them. Now, before David became king of Israel, famous King David, he had to run for his life because the current king at the time prior to his reign was King Saul, the first king of Israel. And David was so stellar in everything that he did. God blessed him in everything, not just killing Goliath, but in everything that he did, all of his military exploits. He was so above and beyond expectations. Saul was jealous, and he was so jealous he wanted to kill David. So as David is making his escape, he's running for his life, the Bible tells us that he stops by, this is in in 1 Samuel, he stops by the sanctuary, and he ate the sacred bread. In the sanctuary, there was a table, and there were 12 loaves of bread. And every week, the older loaves were removed, and fresh loaves were placed there. And those removed loaves were to be eaten by the priests. It was lawful only for the priests to eat these. But David ate these, these loaves of bread. But David was innocent. I mean, the way Jesus tells the story, the implication, the way the Bible tells the story, the implication is that David was completely innocent in doing what was unlawful because he was hungry, because there was a need, and because the priests, who it was their right to eat this bread, the priest said, okay, you can have my bread. He gave it to him. So even though it wasn't the plan, he was was innocent. Now, of course, the priest could have said, sorry, David, I know you're, you know, you know, you're asking for bread, but I ha- and, and I have bread to give you, but since I am the priest and the Bible says that it's only lawful for the priest to eat, I'm not going to give it to you. And it really doesn't matter to me that you're hungry. He could have said that. But when the priest gave David his bread, he was demonstrating God's character. And Jesus makes this clear In Matthew's gospel, now, Matthew's gospel tells the same story of harvesting the the grain, the the disciples going through the grain field and eating eating these these kernels of of grain. Tells the same story. But after telling the story of David in Matthew's gospel, of of, um, David eating the, the sacred bread, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 7. He says this to the Pharisees. If you had known what these words mean, he quotes the prophet Hosea. He's speaking their language. The, the, the prophet Hosea, Old Testament prophet, the Pharisees knew this, knew of this prophet, knew of the prophecy. If you had known what these words mean, I desire what? Mercy. This is the heart of God. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. You would not have made a false accusation had you known that this is the heart of God. He prioritizes mercy over sacrifice. I'm so grateful that the character of God desires mercy over sacrifice because that is exactly what human beings need. We need a God like this, a God that desires mercy mercy. Now, people who have something to give are capable of making a sacrifice. Like, who are the people who make sacrifices? It's someone who has something to sacrifice, right? 
People who have something to give can make these sacrifices. For example, there's a reason earlier in our church service that Pastor Brandon made an offering call. We call for church offering here. Why? Because we have something to give. There are people here like you and me. We, we are able to give. We can make some kind of a sacrifice monetarily in order to fund the ministry of God. Even if you have at least one penny, you are capable of making a monetary sacrifice. And I would guess that all of you have access to at least one penny. So we make an offering call because we have something to give. Mercy on the other hand. Mercy is for people who are in desperate need of something that they cannot provide. It's for people who have empty pockets, people who have empty hands, people who lack the resources. That's who needs mercy. Example of mercy During World War II, an American bomber pilot was in a desperate situation. That's that's this guy right here. He was in a desperate situation. While flying his B-15 bomber over German-occupied territory, his plane was attacked by German 109 fighter planes. That's this one here. It was attacked, and it got ripped to shreds. In fact, it was so badly damaged that the German fighter pilot said, it's going down. We're just going to go and, and move on to other targets. They were certain this plane was going to crash. I mean, the engines had been hit. The, the guns on this plane had been rendered inoperable by the, the, their, their um, artillery, their whatever, the things that they shot from their plane, <laughs> the bullets. <laughs> anyway, Right. I'm doing my best here. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, but, but somehow this American bomber pilot was able to continue to fly this plane. Somehow he's able to, to keep it going. Now, in, in, this, in the condition that this plane was, it, just getting back to their base, the, the air base in, in England, just getting back there would have taken a miracle. I mean, already they were struggling to maintain altitude with this plane, but so badly damaged. But even if they could somehow make it across the English Channel and land in that Air Force base in, in England, they would have to make it through a thick line of anti-aircraft artillery um, guns that were stationed along the coast. I mean, there was this line that was, that was unbroken. They would have to somehow fly over this. And these anti um, aircraft artillery guns, they would have spotted this bomber from miles away. They would have had their sights on it, and the moment it came into range, they would have have shot it down easily. This American pilot knew that, but what other option did he have? He he was doing his best, and as as he struggled to fly his plane through the air over German-occupied territory, it passed over an an airport where a member of the German Luftwaffe A German ace was getting into his fighter plane. Now, the ace had seen the bomber, and he was just itching to add a bomber plane to his list. Another one. He had many, um, but to add another bomber to his list of kills. Soon, the German ace was in the air and closing in on his target. And as he came near to the American aircraft, he got a closer look at it, and he he was wondering himself, 
How is this plane even flying? I mean, it's missing a significant part of, necessary part of the plane. How is it even moving forward? He gets closer and he looks at the damage and he realizes that there's nothing that this plane can do. The, the, the guns are inoperable. He, he flies just off the wing. He sees the American pilot who is just focused on, on going ahead. And as, he, as the German ace assesses the damage on this plane, he realizes that this bomber is completely helpless. And whether he summons some sense of sportiness or, or, or just propriety, I don't know what it is, but something remarkable happened inside this German ace's mind. He decided that instead of shooting this plane down, he was going to fly next to it and accompany it to safety. Just, just a, a complete change. He decided to show mercy to this helpless crew. He decided to fly next to it because he knew that when this bomber flew over the anti-aircraft artillery, that they would clearly see one of their own 109 planes, one of these German planes, and they knew that it would be completely unnecessary for them to fire a shot if a fully capable fighter pilot was flying next to this bomber. He knew that his presence next to this plane would save it. Accompanied by this German ace, the American bomber made it to the ocean and somehow was able to land at the English Air Force Base where it was headed. These two pilots, the American pilot, the German ace, they started that day as enemies. They, they would have killed each other. They could have. But because the German ace showed mercy to this American bomber, something very amazing took place. Years later, actually, the German ace immigrated to North America. And years later, these two pilots were able to meet each other. And they began to talk. And these two men who were once avowed enemies, as they talked to each other, as they talked about that day, they talked about those experiences. They talked about their common interests. They went from being enemies to seeing each other as brothers because of mercy. When it comes to doing what is right, the Bible says that we are just like this American bomber. We are helpless. We cannot defend ourselves. We cannot do anything to save ourselves. We are helpless, and there's nothing that we can do about it. Sin has placed us in a hostile relationship with God. And God sees our need. And instead of gunning us down, he shows us mercy. He gives us a way for the relationship that sin has compromised to be restored, for there to be healing in that relationship. And he doesn't say, this is what you're supposed to do to fix what you have done wrong. He says, don't do anything. Rest. He gives us a way, and that way comes, that way of restoration comes through rest. The provision of rest is God's expression of mercy. And Jesus tells us how this is done in Mark chapter 2. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, 
He's explaining to the Pharisees, look, it's not about what you do for me. It's not about what you do religiously that restores the relationship. He says that the Sabbath was made for man. It was made for you. This is how Jesus provides rest. The merciful expression of Jesus that meets our needs is the making of the Sabbath. He says that the Sabbath was made for man. Now, the word Sabbath means a cessation or a resting, a coming to an end of work. It's someone who's working, they stop working. That's Sabbath. That's what the Sabbath is talking about. And when the Bible says, when Jesus says that this Sabbath rest was made for man, he's not making a a, um, gender-specific statement. He's saying that it was made for everyone. It was made for humanity. Now, some people look at the Sabbath today and say, oh, that's a Jewish institution. But according to Jesus, that was not a Jewish institution. He says that he doesn't say that the Sabbath was made for Jews. He said that the Sabbath was made for everyone, for humanity, for people. And that's because Jews are not the only ones that need rest. Like, if we didn't need rest, if we didn't need to cease from our work so that Jesus could save us, then Yeah, we don't need the Sabbath. But he says that the Sabbath was made for humanity, for people, for everyone. Now, perhaps you've noticed this, that everything that you and I do somehow, eventually, at some point, leads to exhaustion. You do it long enough, you'll be exhausted. I mean, of course, working makes us tired. Doing schoolwork probably makes you tired, right? Um, Worrying, fighting, These things make us tired. Of course they do. But also doing activities that we enjoy makes us tired, right? Playing a favorite game, listening to music, going on vacation. Who of you have returned from vacation and said, nah, I'm pretty tired? (laughs) Ever had that happen? It, It doesn't matter what we do. Everything that we do while we are awake somehow eventually leads to exhaustion if we do it long enough. That's all we can do. In fact, there is nothing that we can do while awake that prevents our need of sleep. There's nothing that you can do to say, well, because I'm doing this, I don't need to sleep anymore. There's nothing that we, we, everything that we do, whenever human beings are involved in it, it's going to lead to exhaustion. Let's pay attention to that principle here. And so even the Sabbath, he's not, look, you're tired, you should take a break. No, even the Sabbath rest was made for us. We could, he doesn't say, you make the Sabbath, you figure it out. Even God makes that for us. God's mercy. Just like sleep welcomes physical restoration, Sabbath welcomes a restoration to our broken relationship with God and with others. It welcomes that. It creates an opportunity for us to stop working and God to start providing for us. That's what Jesus is talking about here in Mark 2, 27. He says the Sabbath was made for man, for humanity. When we stop working, that's when we can receive what God has made for us. That's when we can receive God's work. Now, all throughout the Bible, we see God working for us so that we can rest. There's this principle. God is at work so people can rest. In the story of creation, when were people made? At the beginning or at the end? No, God is at work. He's making all these wonderful things. He makes this beautiful paradise. And then when everything is done, he makes people. And the first full day of their life, he says, I want for you to rest. God is at work so we can rest. We can enjoy what he has made 
In the Exodus story, another example, God is at work in the Exodus story. We read about it where he worked to set his people free. He's the one that sent the plagues. He's the one that told them what to do. He's the one that provided the Passover lamb. He leads them out of Egypt. He opens the Red Sea. He provides water. He provides food. He protects them. He keeps their clothes from wearing out. God is constantly at work. Why? So that he can lead them to the promised land so that they don't have to wander anymore, so they can rest. God is at work so that we can rest. In the gospel story, we find Jesus constantly working. Read the gospels. What is Jesus doing? He's constantly doing things. He's healing people. He's encouraging people. He's working. He's teaching people. And at the end of Jesus' ministry, he ramps it up. The last moments of Jesus' ministry before the cross, he's not sleeping. He's spending all night in prayer. He's enduring abuse. He's enduring injustice. He's enduring abandonment. And then he carries his cross to the place of execution. And there, the Bible tells us, John brings this out, the Gospel of John brings it, that Jesus willingly lays down his life. Jesus is actively at work so that we can rest. We can rest from our efforts to save ourselves. And we can experience, we just, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop trying to save myself. That is the experience of salvation. When I stop working, I'm able to receive. It's believe. Whoever believes in Jesus, not whoever works, whoever has faith, by grace through faith we are saved. That's trusting. That's, that's stopping from our works. Jesus did, God did all this work for us so that we could rest, we could cease from our efforts of saving ourselves and rest in his work of saving us. God, you go ahead and come in and save me. I'm gonna get out of the way. I'm gonna stop messing things up. That is the experience that he provides for us because he works. We can trust the God that is constantly at work for us, a capable God who's able to provide everything we need, who does not sleep, who does not slumber, he is at work for us. We can trust a God like that. That's the kind of God that we need as Lord. And Jesus says, that's who you have in verse 28. Okay, so verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So then, therefore, in other words, the logical conclusion here, because Jesus made the Sabbath, he is Lord of it. Makes sense. He made it, he's Lord of it. And this is not an oppressive thing. His Lordship allows us to rest because he is in control, because he is in charge. We don't have to do anything we get to enjoy it. In fact, if we try to do something, we mess it up. When we rest in what God has done for us, thanking him, receiving him, receiving his work on our behalf, when we rest, when we experience the Sabbath rest, our lives become complete. There's something beautiful about a sleeping baby. I mean, yes, babies are beautiful when they're awake, right? But when a baby gets tired, come on, parents, grandparents, when a baby gets tired and a baby gets fussy, there is no amount of food or distractions or comfort that can replace sleep. It only gets worse if you try to do those things. Try to distract a tired baby. Try to play with a tired baby. It's just get, the, the volume is going to go up. That feeling of fingernails on a chalkboard is just going to go up. I mean, it's just going to get more and more uncomfortable. There is no substitute for sleep for a tired baby. 
But when a tired baby closes their eyes and falls asleep, mm. in that moment, there could be nothing more perfect. Ask a parent. It's amazing. This is how we are. This place of perfect rest. I mean, this baby, look at how perfect this baby is. Just could not be more perfect in this moment. And this is our experience when we rest from our striving of trying to fix the problems in our character, our character defect. We try to, when we stop trying to fix those and try, stop trying to fix those in other people as well, we rest from that and trust God to restore us. He brings his perfection to us. It's a beautiful place. This is what the Sabbath rest is. So today, if there is something in your life that's bothering you, if there's something that needs to be fixed, something that's just not quite right, if you're troubled, if you're overwhelmed by something, I want to invite you to trust Jesus with it. I want to invite you to recognize that Jesus is at work. He's constantly at work. We don't have time to go into it all, but he's in heaven. He's our high priest. He's working to perfect his people. He's working to remove those things that are problems in our lives. He's at work. We can trust that. We can rest in him. I want to invite you to rest from trying to be in charge of fixing your problems. And let God be in charge. Let him do his work. And welcome whatever that work is. Maybe that work is going to invite you to join him. Maybe that work is going to be like, just relax right now. Whatever his work is, I invite you to welcome it because whatever he does is good. It's complete. God doesn't leave things undone. Whenever he works, it is complete. And so we can receive it. We can trust it. He is Lord of the Sabbath. As long as we think we can do the work of fixing our lives, as long as we think God needs our help in some way to save ourselves or to save others, we're going to miss out. We're going to miss out on the perfect work of God that only he can do in us. We're going to miss out on the Sabbath rest. Thankfully, God has given us another option. He says, instead of trying to fix it all, I've made the Sabbath for you. I've made this opportunity for you to stop working and to receive what I have done for you. The Sabbath provides the rest we need to experience the spiritual restoration that we cannot provide for ourselves. May this be your experience on this Sabbath. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, it's not flattering, but it's what we need. We need to rest. I know I often want to work and I get in the way, and I've messed things up, and I pray that you'd forgive me. And if there's any of my, my brothers and sisters here who have been in that same boat, well, we've tried to help you and mess things up, forgive us. And may we have the good sense to recognize that our only option for spiritual restoration is to stop working and to rest in what you've provided in the Sabbath. Oh God, may we receive you fully into our lives today. May we spend that time with you as we let go of our agenda, let go of our attempts to try to fix ourselves. Thank you for bringing about the restoration that we need. In Jesus' name, amen.